everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the 2020 election. We aren't talking politics, but more about the mechanics of the Electoral College and a potential transfer of power after the November 3rd election. We're going to be speaking with Ava Ayers, who's an assistant professor here, but also the director of our Government Law Center. Before we get to Ava, though, just some reminders, as always, check out albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus for all of our updates on how we're keeping campus open. You can also follow us on any of the major social media platforms or to hear previous episodes of the podcast. We're everywhere, including SoundCloud. So that's enough from me. Let's get over and talk to Ava. Back on the show here with Professor Ayers, and Ava, if you just take a second to introduce yourself to everybody listening to the podcast today. My name is Ava Ayers. I am the director of the Government Law Center and an assistant professor at Albany Law School. All right, we're going to jump right into it here because obviously when this comes out, Election Day is just a couple of days away. Let's start talking about the Electoral College, though. Why do we vote for electors rather than directly for presidential and vice presidential candidates here in America? It's the result of a historical compromise in which when the United States became the United States, there was concern about northern states having too much power and states were reluctant to give up their power. The Electoral College was a compromise related to the famous three-fifths compromise under which enslaved people would count as three-fifths of a person for purposes of apportioning political representation. The Electoral College ensured that states would have power. Of course, today, many people feel that the Electoral College is unfair and undemocratic in that states get a bonus for small size so that senators, who of course are assigned two per state rather than based on population, senators get you electors. So there are 538 electors. And if you're a big state like New York or California, your two senator bonus in the Electoral College doesn't count for much. We already have 29, excuse me, 27 electors without our senatorial ones. But if you're a small state like Vermont or Wyoming, those two triple the size of your vote, which means that people in Wisconsin or Vermont have significantly more voting power than those of us who live in the big states. And of course, some US territories like Puerto Rico are not represented in the Electoral College at all. The District of Columbia is, that's how you get to 538. Those last three are the District of Columbia, but not so Puerto Rico. After people have voted, what is the next step in the process? When they vote, as you say, they vote for electors, although one positive change in the Electoral College that was made in the 1800s is you do now at least see the names of the presidential and vice presidential candidates on your ballot rather than the names of the electors. So after you vote, the votes have to be counted and the states certify those counts. This, of course, is the stage at which Bush v. Gore became a problem where the Electoral College couldn't be determined without Florida and the votes in Florida were we all shudder to hear the words, too close to call. So state by state, the votes are counted to determine who's the popular vote winner in the state. Once that winner is certified by the state, the electors from each state meet to vote. Here in New York State, they will be voting in the New York State Capitol. They include folks like the governor and lieutenant governor, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and her husband, as well as other Democratic Party notables 
and the minority conference leaders from the Republican side in the state legislator, legislature. So the electors vote, they then certify their votes and send those off to the federal government. And then in Congress, there's a meeting at which Congress has to go through those electoral votes. There are these chests opened um, on the floor of the house in a, a visually impressive little ceremony. But the members of Congress can then object. And there are complicated procedures for objections to electoral votes, uh, including the argument that they were not properly appointed as electors. But uh, we've never had a problem um, in, in recent history anyway at that stage. And the final stage is if there's a tie, which, which we can talk about later, but if there's a tie, uh, Congress, the House of Representatives has a tie-breaking vote. So there are multiple stages in the process. And in theory, there's a possibility for mischief at any stage of the process. But in practice, there are mechanisms in place at each of those stages, as complicated as, complicated as it is, uh, to make it very unlikely that any of those will turn into real-world problems. I do want to get back to tied electoral colleges, but I do have to ask you a quick follow-up here. You mentioned right in the beginning of your answer there that it used to be the electors that were on the ballot instead of the people actually running for office. Is that true? Like, what, what's right. the history behind that? Yeah, in the early 1800s, well, it was a delegation of representation. So the idea was that the electors would be choosing um, and we would vote for them. One of the interesting things about the Electoral College is the degree to which people have thought that the electors should have any discretion. And the Supreme Court just had a case on this in June of this year. The court released a decision dealing with states in which there are penalties for electors who don't vote for the person they're supposed to vote for. Right. Electors are appointed by the political committees in each state. So the Democratic Committee, the Republican Committee appoints a slate of electors. But you had a situation in 2016 where a few electors didn't vote for the person they were supposed to vote for. So they were sanctioned, uh, fined. Other states have provisions under which when an elector votes for somebody they're not supposed to vote for, they are immediately removed from office and a new elector is substituted in. And the Supreme Court was ruling on, is that constitutionally permissible? Can you take that discretion away from electors? Now, you can, they said, it's okay. New York does not have a faithless elector law. So if our electors vote for somebody other than the person that they are assigned to, uh, that vote, as far as we can tell, will be effective. But there's a potential problem there, which is what if somebody dies uh, during a presidential election, somebody meaning the presidential uh, candidate, who wins, can the electors substitute their vote for the vice presidential candidate? And whether or not that would be permitted as a matter of state law, some states do explicitly allow that possibility. Um, it's something that I think should be clarified by state legislatures to avoid confusion in the, in the unlikely event that that happens. Crazy stuff. This is a wild system. I'm glad we're having this talk right before election day. <laughs> it is a wild system, yeah. If neither candidate gets to the 270 in the Electoral College that they need to win, what happens? The House <laughs> of Representatives votes on who should be president. Now that vote, just the House, not the Senate, just the House. Now you might think the reason you choose the House and not the Senate is that the House, which is proportional to population, is more representative and in some sense more democratic. And if you thought that, you might expect that the House votes with one vote per representative, but that's not how we do it. When the House votes in, to resolve an electoral college tie, each state delegation gets a single vote. 
meaning New York State gets one vote, and so does Vermont. This is a strange way to do it. I don't know why it's done this way, but further complicating it is that I can't even tell you right now how many states' delegations would be controlled by Republicans or Democrats, because it will be the new House of Representatives, not the current one, that casts that vote. So the outcome of this election will determine how many delegations are controlled by Republicans or Democrats and how the House vote would come out. But the answer is it's the House. Okay, so now we can look a little bit back in history to be a little bit of a guide if we have a, a very close vote. You said the, the dreaded words that no election official wants to hear. It's too close mm -hmm. to call. Mm -hmm. How does this election end up with the Supreme Court like we saw back in 2000 when it was so close? Right. Well, there's two things there. One is elections end up with the Supreme Court all the time. Uh, in fact, the Supreme Court just today, as we're recording this, issued an election excuse me, issued an order in an election-related case dealing with Wisconsin, which seems very likely to be one of the swing states, dealing with Wisconsin of election officials' decision not to extend the deadline for counting absentee ballots. Uh, so the uh, Wisconsin officials said, um, we understand the mails are delayed because of COVID. We understand that more people are using mail-in ballots because of COVID. Nonetheless, if you don't get your ballot in by election day, not postmarked by election day, but received by election day, it won't count. And a lower federal court said that is going to disenfranchise people. Up to 100,000 people won't end up having their votes counted. Some people won't even get their ballot by election day, much less be able to return it by election day. And the Supreme Court just issued an order saying the court should not have intervened. Wisconsin officials get to make their own decisions about what deadlines to set. And this is the kind of, and we're going to be seeing a lot, there's lots of election litigation percolating, um, and it's not unusual for the Supreme Court to get involved. The Supreme Court gets involved whenever it's the case that a, a case works its way up from the lower courts on an election-related issue. Bush v. Gore was unusual because the outcome of that election, at least so everybody thought, depended on the Supreme Court's ruling. We were down to a single state. That state was very close. There were constitutional issues, according to at least many of the justices on the Supreme Court. And so not only was there a case that was outcome determinative, there was also legal issues that were the kind of legal issues that can be heard by the Supreme Court. Again, not everybody agreed on that. Um, many people think the Supreme Court shouldn't have allowed itself to take that case. But all of those things converged um, now, in fact, it turned out later that Bush v. Gore didn't determine the outcome of that election. Uh, there was a massive study by, I believe, nine media organizations to recount all the votes in Florida, which found that if Gore had won the case and gotten the recount he was seeking, it still wouldn't have changed the election. Bush still would have won. Notably, if all of the votes in Florida had been recounted, Gore would have won. But he was only seeking a recount in certain. Bush v. Gore wasn't, in the end, outcome determinative in the way that a lot of people think it was. Nonetheless, it appears to be true that we got the result wrong. Again, on ending up in the Supreme Court, it's a relatively rare convergence of circumstances that will create a Bush v. Gore situation where the outcome depends on what the Supreme Court says in a glaring way. But the Supreme Court is looking, hearing, routinely hearing cases that may have a profound effect on the election in ways that we don't notice. Uh, Wisconsin 
as I said, may turn out to be a key state. And if it does, it's possible that this order, which profoundly affects how many voters in Wisconsin will have their votes counted, could end up determining the outcome of that. It won't be as high profile because it's over already, but elections end up in the Supreme Court all the time. Well, you mentioned one thing at the beginning there that's just hanging over the elect- hanging over everyday life right now. It's COVID-19. It's hanging over this election, of course. Is there a possibility for challenges around legalities of absentee votes that are forced by COVID-19? Sure. And I would expect that if elections are close, it may take some time to resolve them to allow challenges like that uh, to be resolved. So with absentee ballots, as with any kind of ballot, there are certain requirements that have to be followed. Um, There's an issue in Pennsylvania about so-called naked ballots. Lawyers love uh, to create catchy euphemisms and metaphors. I'm guessing it was a lawyer who came up with that one. The the uh, the idea there is that when you mail your absentee ballot in, you don't just mail the ballot inside an envelope, you mail an envelope inside the envelope. And without that intermediate envelope, the ballot isn't fully acceptable. And so, yes, we may hear challenges to some of those val- ballots, people arguing that they were not improperly submitted. Um, certainly people arguing that local policies on which votes to count are inconsistent with state policies or maybe even with federal rules. And I think that's why um, we need to be prepared for a long election. It's actually my, my last one here before we hit the lightning round. It's been a long year, been a long year for everybody, very long year, not just election related, but how long might it take until we know who the next president is? It could be a while. And I think that there are there are deadlines uh, in the electoral college process, but I think what Americans need to remember is that a delay in knowing the winner, as uncomfortable as it might be, isn't a bad thing at all. It means that we're being careful, that we're doing everything that needs to be done to try to do this fairly. Now, of course, I'm not saying that all of the challenges that are being considered are good challenges, just that there's no reason to think that even in a country as technologically sophisticated as we are, that all of these votes can be counted and counted accurately on election night. In fact, the concept of election night is a bit strange. It's certainly very convenient for people to have the answer and to know the answer. And I will be staying up late right along with everybody else to find out what that answer is going to be. Um, But in a way, I hope that we don't find out on election night, because the more care we put into it, the more we'll avoid a situation like the one in Florida, where as we look back historically, there are real concerns that the wrong person came away as the winner of that election. And I don't mean wrong as a matter of policy. I mean, that when historians and journalists went back to count those votes, they found that Gore had won Florida. We don't want to be in that situation again. Not because it's going to lead to riots. I don't think it will. I think that a remarkable percentage of the American public, um, there were several polls, I believe, showing it to be over 80%, accepted the results of Bush v. Gore afterwards. They may have been unhappy about it, but they accepted them. I think Americans accept a lot. The concern is we just want to get it right, and we should take as much time as it requires to make sure that that happens. 
One thing that nobody can wait for, though, is the lightning round here on the Albany Law School <laughs> podcast. Are you ready for the lightning round? It's a, it's a lightning fast lightning round today. I'm ready. Go ahead. All right. Everybody's going to have this story that they can tell their grandchildren someday about how they voted in 2020. Just what you did in 2020, I can see that being like the fifth grade, like oral history project in 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. How are you planning on voting? Not who you're voting for, but how are you planning on voting this year? I'm going to vote in person and I'm doing it early. Great. I already, I actually did mine by mail. I already mailed mine mm-hmm. back in. Something totally unelection related here. How's your fall semester been going? We haven't really seen each other in person. We used to see <laughs> each other every couple of weeks. And how, How's yeah. the fall been going for you? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I think that everybody looks tired these days. Everybody looks worn out and we're all missing the energy that we get from being able to check in with each other and see each other in person. But at the same time, I think there's a resilience and a creativity that I've seen from everybody I'm working with, from students, from my colleagues on the faculty, from the staff at the law school, that's inspiring. And I I think that when we look back, we're going to be really proud of how we came through this. It's a very challenging time. I think we're going to be really proud. For the moment, we're really tired. Definitely very tired. And now they're taking the sun away from us, too. I know. I know. You know, there's a bill in the New York State Legislature that would change daylight savings time. Oh, boy. Don't get me too excited now. I can only handle so much over the next week or so. <laughs> it won't happen this time. We'll, we'll, we'll miss it for this winter. So we don't right. make any changes. Finally, here on the show, same question we always ask. Is there anything you'd like to just let the law school community know? It can either be about the election or just in general. Halloween's on Saturday, you know. <laughs> All I want to express is my gratitude. I am so thankful to be part of this community. The energy and commitment that I see from the students, the creativity in the face of challenges, the way the faculty and staff have pulled together, the way people are continuing, you know, they're not just struggling to keep up, they're continuing to try to make legal education better, to try to make our classes better. And I'm really grateful to be part of this community and part of the the teams that I'm on here at the law school. And as challenging as it is, I'm excited to see where we go next. Professor Ayers, thank you so much for being on the podcast this week. Thanks, Ben. It's always a pleasure.